0: This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library main branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do.
1: <laughs> Razeeb Khan's Unsupervised Learning. Thanks for listening to the ungated version of the Unsupervised Learning Podcast. If you want to read some essays on some of these topics, please check out razeib.substack.com. Again, that's razeib.substack.com. Thank you. Hey, everybody. uh, This is Razib Khan with the Unsupervised Learning Podcast, and I am here with Diana Fleischman of Aporia Magazine. Uh, She's also an evolutionary psychologist who has a research appointment at the University of New Mexico. And she has been involved in the field uh, for many decades now. Um, So I want to start off with uh, asking you, I guess, what is evolutionary psychology? How would you define it? What are the presuppositions or premises of the field? So we can just kind of understand as we're going forward what we're talking about.
0: Cool. Evolutionary psychology is the idea that the human mind is... Has adaptations for solving certain problems that were recurrent throughout deep history. So, problems like finding a mate, finding food, uh, avoiding aggression, avoiding disease. These are the kinds of problems that evolutionary psychology deals with. And there's a couple different main schools of evolutionary psychology, but the main one, which is the Santa Barbara School, Lita Cosminis and John Tooby, they have this idea that the mind is uh, actually sort of a set of modules or like programs. And instead of the mind being some kind of general purpose mechanism, in fact, we have programs that solve specific kinds of adaptive problems. And that's generally what most evolutionary psychologists uh, think. There's also some other suppositions that have been challenged or unchallenged over time. One of them is that there's a, a psychic unity of mankind, that all human beings everywhere have a similar psychology or psychological architecture, which is something that is a little bit uh, controversial. And also that there are significant sex differences uh, between men and women and, and in terms of their psychology, considering that they had to solve very different adaptive problems throughout evolutionary history.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the sex differences thing, I think, was traditionally the least controversial aspect. But I feel like in the last couple of years, last five years, it's gotten like quite muddled. How has evolutionary psychology dealt with uh, the changing tenure tenor of the culture.
0: One interesting thing that's happened is I think that there is going to be a woke and an anti-woke evolutionary sciences. There, there seems to be a schism happening right now. And on a recent conversation with uh, with Mike Bailey, who's a sexologist and uh, whose son is an evolutionary psychologist, we had this conversation about you know whether it's not best actually for different societies like now with sex research there's two societies there's a woke and an anti-woke kind of sex research society but the european human behavior and evolution association is really into um uh, anthropology human behavior ecology they tend to actually collect data out in the field and they have very few evolutionary psychologists and very few evolutionary psychology um uh sessions in their, in their conference. And uh, one of the main people there is called Rebecca Sear, and she's a demographer, and she's very against you know what, what she thinks are some of the excesses of evolutionary psychology, including overestimating sex differences. You'll get a sense with the European Human and Behavior and Evolution Association, which met back in April, their keynote was Adam Rutherford, which I don't think that Adam Rutherford would be a keynote at the Human Behavior and Evolution Society in the United States. Whereas... Uh, Hbest in the United States is really much more focused on evolutionary psychology, um, sex differences. Uh, there's some really fun kind of talks and ideas that are that are being thrown around. I think they had a whole session like on incels, and that's quite different than than. Uh, so those two societies seem to have uh, mm-hmm. a rift. And and I think the European Human Behavior and Evolution Association they are also like probably much less in favor of talking about sex differences. Um, if you look at some people involved in that. You know, I think like David Geary, um, David Schmidt, uh, David Buss, all, all the Davids, they're all uh, much more into sex differences. And, and, you know, while they're welcome in both conferences, I just don't think that there would be like a whole session on sex differences at uh, EB, which is what it's called, as opposed to HBAS. So, you know, maybe that's a good thing. I don't know if, if that's something that's also happening in behavioral genetics or in other well, fields.
1: Well, yeah, it's interesting because I think in behavioral genetics, it's the opposite uh in terms of the woke the stuff uh is stronger in the United States than it is in Europe uh-huh. and and some of the uh some i will tell you i mean you know this happened years ago so not not that many years ago but i think i can tell you but um there were some things related to sex differences and sexual harassment and microaggressions and other sorts of things uh in from what i've heard in the behavioral genetics community in their conferences and basically the americans one because they had more people, but the Americans were pushing the more progressive social justice positions, and the Europeans, and a lot of these Europeans, like they're not conservative, they're socialists and stuff. But uh, you know, they they were resisting. So it seems like in the behavioral genetics community, it is the opposite. I do have to say, in the genetics community as a whole, definitely people in the United States are more woke. So uh, evolutionary psychology. Or like you know this this field, is seems to be um and you know I know I know Rebecca's here a little bit she she was on the Insight uh, back before she had her awakening I th- because yeah I mean I know she's a big activist right now she wasn't like that five years ago I don't know what happened yeah, but
0: she, yeah she's she's changed quite a lot um I used to uh I mean she, I I was at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine I've I've been out with her. In groups several times, so that we had no problems before. Fairly recently, but uh, you know, just I I don't want to get too far afield here. But yeah, in the HBS, there was also like a a reckoning about whatever sexual harassment, and we actually ended up collecting data. Uh, I think there were three hundred respondents, and three people said that they had been asked out, and one person said that it was persistent in a way that they didn't enjoy, and so. Certainly, there are some people who would say that was one too many, but I don't think like one out of 300 people is a particularly pervasive problem.
1: I mean, yeah. (laughs) I mean, okay, so evolutionary psychology, of course, like you would do a survey uh, and, you know, you would be interested in sexual harassment, like not in sexually harassing, but in the topic because evolutionary psychology, you know, stylized fact like you guys are obsessed with sex, right?
0: Yeah, so we are obsessed with sex. No, uh, you know, there's two there's two filters in terms of what you, whether your genes get into the next generation. Uh, one of those filters is if you survive, uh, which is much less sexier than the other filter, which is whether you have sex and whether somebody wants to have sex with you. And so, reproductive success is very important, but there's also this other factor of sex, which is that in our species, sex is used for a variety of reasons other than just reproduction. It's also used. Um, to make alliances, uh, to show affiliation, um, you know. There, I, I've written about this. I wrote about bisexuality a lot when I was um, in graduate school, and what I said essentially is that there's a there's a continuum of affection to sex, and that we use sex as a reward to facilitate behavior that's in our adaptive interests. So we're not like bonobos where we're having sex all the time, but we're also not like chimps. Who who never who are very rarely have kind of same sex sexual relationships. And if you ask bonobo researchers, um, there's this bonobo research station where I was talking to one of the researchers, and she was saying you could take all the bonobos, open up all the gates, and let all the different groups mingle together. And while there'd be a bit of frenzied humping, it wouldn't uh, end up with bloodshed. Whereas if you had a group of chimps together and you let them all interact with each other, um, there would be almost certainly a serious injury or death, so that's the difference uh, in species that can have sex for
1: affiliation and those that can't. Actually, you just dropped in the bonobo there, and like, <laughs> you know, I feel like uh, I know I know what that is. You know, I've read my Franz de Waal or whatever. <laughs> uh, you talk about bonobos and common chimpanzees because yeah. I feel like a lot of our discussions uh, are based on primatology and bonobos and common chimpanzee field work. But the two species are quite different, and I feel that. What researchers generalize about primates, quote unquote, apes, uh, you know, our lineage varies based on what they study. And that's a little weird to me.
0: It's a little weird to you what the primates that people study, how they influence their perception of human behavior.
1: Uh, okay. So I don't know. Um, I think Rangum, he studies common chimpanzees, right? Richard Rangum, right? I
0: think so. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so, you know, we talk about, like, you know, I mean, he, I think, you know, he's written about violence and stuff like that. And then, you know, some researcher, I think DeWall studies bonobos, you know, bonobos. I don't know how you how people say it, but I've heard different things.
0: There's two different ways to say it.
1: Yeah. And, the, and, you know, they're like, oh, like, they're the sexy ape. And, you know, so we're talking about sex all the time. And, like, look, we're not common chimpanzees or bonobos. So... You know, like, how are we going to, you know, and like, you know, phylogenetically, we are equally distant to both of them because they're in a clade by themselves, you know? And so, agree, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah makes... there's, there's, there's
0: some idea that there's hybrids of them out there. I just think it's very interesting, you know, because you you do population genetics and stuff like that, to think that two species that have such completely dissimilar social behavior actually can still um can still interbreed um, in principle, uh, chimps and bonobos don't interbreed in the wild uh, because bonobos um, and chimps have very different attitudes to water. Chimps don't like water, they won't swim anywhere, and so that they don't they, they well it was. So,
1: so I think I think in um you know evolutionary biology, we call this uh, probably allopatric uh, speciation. Yeah. where the, the bonobos are south of the congo river and chimpanzees are north and east of, and west of the congo river and so they can't cross the congo river and that's how the speciation happened but like you said they're social socially very very different um you know chimpanzees tend to be you know i'll say patrilocal patrilineal um and you know tend to much more aggression uh bonobos are the opposite I think they're matrilineal less aggression more sex and uh I guess what you're implying here is it's not learned behavior. It's hardwired, and yet they can still hybridize, right?
0: Yeah, they can still hybridize. I, I So my first ever job when I was 19 was working at a place called the Language Research Center in Decatur, Georgia. And they had a bonobo breeding program, and they also had uh, four chimps there. And the chimps could use symbols to communicate with language. And it was actually a bunch of behaviorists ran that um, particular center. And so uh, that was one of the formative experiences for me was uh, working with with you know great apes. At that time, they also had rhesus macaques at that same center. Anyway, they ended up moving the bonobos out, um, but the bonobos were actually quite aggressive to to humans. There were two of the bonobo researchers were missing fingers from the bonobo working with bonobos. So,
1: yeah. So, and and that is that is actually something that I wonder about in terms of we have these stylized ideas of the peaceful, sexy ape, and then chimpanzees are crazy and you know they'll rip your face off. Common chimpanzees. Uh, and you know these are stylized facts, and you know they do reflect something in reality, but there's a distribution of behaviors right uh just like human beings uh you know we can be quite peaceful and Zen or we can be like crazy and so you know if if there were if there were um anthropologists studying humans like you know depending on which you know japanese very warlike people in the nineteen forties you know, and now today not you know they're like not very warlike, like you know? So, I mean, how do we generalize that sort of thing? And, uh, you know, I think our prior as human beings is we have culture, we're special. Uh, but, I mean, are we are, – like, how are you sure? Because, like, I don't know this field as well. How are you sure that common chimpanzees and bonobos differ because they're hardwired to be different?
0: I mean, the, the, the experience that I have is when they were raised in captivity, um, and they were raised in captivity. And Sue Savage Rumbaugh, who is this woman who uh, – Founded the center that I worked at. She actually raised uh, a baby chimp and a baby bonobo together and taught them symbol language together, uh, and they still had different calls and they still had quite different behavior. So I think that's one indication. But you know, I, I can't necessarily be sure. I was reminded of you know Robert Sapolsky in this conversation, who has uh, I don't know if it's a whole book or most of a book about how he studied a baboon troop where the culture was fundamentally changed by the death of a couple of um, individuals. So that's, that's quite interesting. But I think given that when they're raised in captivity, they show, they show quite similar behavior. Um, you do see bonobos raised in captivity, Gigi rubbing, and you don't see chimpanzees doing that, even if they're raised with bonobos.
1: Okay, so that that's that, that's that's a pretty big difference. And so what you're saying here is there's hardwired behaviors which are which are not shocking. Um as people we have children, uh you see mannerisms in your children at a very early age and even if like the father's out of the house a lot because he's working, you see certain mannerisms and obviously it's somehow hard coded into the brain. Um there's probably some hard coding combined with some sort of priming, you know, some some like inputs obviously come in And they behave in a particular way, and so it's not like shocking to me. Um, I am looking at um, just like the literature real quickly. You're talking about hybridization. It looks like certain um, uh, certain chimpanzee groups have hybridized uh, in the Congo in the last species
0: of chimps. Yeah,
1: yeah, in the past like five hundred thousand years, which you know that's kind of like you know, uh, you know, I mean Neanderthals and modern humans are our stem lineage or African lineage separated like 750, 800,000 maybe on the high end years ago. So uh, this is not trivial because they have a shorter lifespan um, and they've been hybridizing. So we have these two apes uh, that are kind of quite different in a very biological way, biobehavioral way, and they can still hybridize, which indicates that probably uh, the best experiment as we're talking would be a hybrid population, like someone, you know, I don't know, like maybe some billionaire, like maybe Elon Musk could fund this. Like, let's create like a troop of like F1s, you know, Folio ones of hybrid common chimpanzees and bonobos. And the hypothesis, if the behavioral differences is hardwired, is that they should behave intermediate, you know? Yeah.
0: Um, It's just, you're talking about things, people that are like hardwired in genetics. I know somebody who was really red-pilled about genetics uh, because he found out that he was the product of sperm donation when he was in his 20s. And so he thought his parents had really done everything for him and that, you know, they had tried, really strived to, uh, to give him all available opportunities to make him smart. Uh, and then when he found out that his dad, the dad that raised him, wasn't his real dad, he's like, oh, okay, it's all genes. So yeah, that's a definitely a, a, a great way to get red pilled.
1: Well, I mean, okay, I think let, let, let's do, the, let's do um, uh, the segue here. So you are an editor <laughs> or you're a contributor at uh, Aporia. Uh, which you know, it's that's a weird word. I'm not it gonna lie, yeah. you know. But um, you wrote about eugenics. You've been writing about eugenics. Like you guys have been just uh, this year. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's this I is this the game.
0: Just since I left academia, yeah. Yeah,
1: if you you've been academia,
0: of, You might as well go for it. You know.
1: Yeah, and so um, talk about your eugenics piece and how people, you know. Okay, here's the thing with eugenics. This is a term that's been used so much that uh, people have different definitions. So the original term about eugenics in the late 19th, really early 20th century, it was even it was actually pre genetic, insofar as the original eugenicists were actually not Mendelian. They were against the Mendel Mendelites, if you want to say, um, although they eventually, you know, became converts. And they had this idea that they wanted to improve the germ plasm of the species. You know, it was like out of the Galtonian tradition. And, um, you know, it was about these heritable characteristics. Today, eugenics is kind of a slur, um, just like, I don't know, racist or something like that. And so, for example, um, you know, people have pointed this out. There is a termination, uh, you know, pre, uh, there's a prenatal screening for Down syndrome Etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Uh, people abort Down syndrome fetuses quite frequently. In certain countries, they're almost gone, like in Iceland and, the, and Denmark. Uh, is that eugenics? So, technically, that is not eugenics because those individuals have very low fertility anyway. So, it's not really having a long term change in the species, you know, germ, plasm, or whatever. But, but, I think most people colloquially will say that's eugenics. And so I don't really I don't really know how to handle this because I've done like the nerdy response. Well actually that's not real eugenics, you know. And then people are like look at you like you're a dork and you kind of are being a dork. So I've given in. And then I've encountered people who do the same thing to me. They're like, well actually that's not really eugenics and I was like, okay, I know it's not. But colloquially, everyone assumes it is. And so, I mean, how do you – first of all, how do you deal – define eugenics for me. Like tell me how yeah. you deal with the definition wars.
0: Okay. So uh, let me just do a brief preamble about how tricky it is to define eugenics. Eugenics has become difficult to define for a variety of reasons. Like you said, before people knew what genetics were like. So, for example, when a mother transmitted syphilis to her baby and her baby ended up blind or deaf, right, they thought that that was genetic. And so treating syphilis became a eugenic endeavor because they thought that was genetic at the time. So there's a lot of stuff that um, you know was considered eugenic, uh, but now we know it doesn't have anything to do with, with, uh, with genetics. Um, also, there's a problem with if you malign eugenics, then you end up defining eugenics in a very weird way because you want to exclude all the stuff that you agree with and include all the stuff that you disagree with. So like Catherine Page Harden in the Genetic Lottery, she says eugenics is all stuff that you know, contributes to inequality. Um, uh, Adam Rutherford and some other people who you define eugenics, they basically say individual choices cannot be eugenics. It's only top-down control. And then when you get into stuff like, you know, is mandatory prenatal screening that's subsidized by the government eugenics, nobody wants to touch that because that's something that all progressives agree with. So to me, eugenics is anything that is meant to improve... The genetic or desirable you know imp- increase the the rate of desirable genetic qualities and decrease the rate of undesirable genetic qualities um in the future and you know I, again, also with covid, people were saying that you know people not wearing masks was eugenic because in some sense it was going to uh, kill off everybody who had a bad a bad immune system. so everything from you know giving up free birth control to literal murder um uh, could be considered eugenics. And it's become very muddied. Uh, just this week, actually, uh, Colin Wright and some other people were looking at this paper that said that um, trans men who are natal females should be allowed to take testosterone when they're pregnant, uh, because the concern about how testosterone would influence a fetus is eugenic, in or it's redolent of eugenics or whatever. So it's become incredibly muddied. But but my my version of it. Actually includes a lot of stuff that people find desirable, things like uh, prenatal screening, but also includes things that people find undesirable, like paying people to get sterilized.
1: Yeah, so definitely, what you're pointing to there is positive versus negative eugenics. Uh, positive eugenics is okay; you want the characteristics that you favor to increase. Negative eugenics is the opposite; disfavored characteristics should decrease. And negative eugenics, you know, traditionally has been done through also like top down coercion and that's why you know it's called negative eugenics and it has like a negative odor um you know a lot of people you know i have traditionally um i don't use the word anymore just cuz it's like too toxic but you know personalized genomic choice you know like uh genomic libertarianism i don't know people make individual choices yeah yeah what were you saying
0: i was just going to say uh, you know one thing that i should go back to is that the person who came up with the term eugenics was Francis Galton. And when Francis Galton was talking about eugenics, he was not talking about top-down control. He was interested in developing a culture in which people considered genetic concerns when they uh, got together with other people, when they made it, and when they got married. He wanted to have a eugenic culture as opposed to any top-down uh, kind of control. And yeah, what you're talking about, is sometimes called liberal eugenics or reapergenics, which is, you know, things like polygenic screening, giving people a choice about what um, children to bring into the world.
1: So an interesting point here, though, is also, um, you know, we're talking about technology, polygenic screening, abortion, all of this stuff, right? It's very, um, you know, post-19th century tech. Uh, But who you select as your sperm or egg donor who you marry that is also that's eugenical, cool. yeah, exactly you know? yeah, you are doing. you are doing polygenic screening, like so women women want a man who's six inches taller than them. That is polygenic screening for height,
0: yeah, in, in some sense, that is polygenic screening, yeah, um you know that's th- it's interesting when you when you look at the culture war about this because I actually really admire progressives who are willing to bite the bullet and say. Uh, no, you shouldn't be able to predict, you know, you shouldn't be able to choose a sperm donor on the basis of their height, or we should have five foot four um, sperm donors in in our banks. Uh, Of course, you would see in terms of uh, selection that they they would probably be unlikely to get selected. Uh, But certainly men under six feet tall do get selected as, as sperm donors. So yes, if you say personal choice cannot be eugenics. It's actually a a lot of progressive lefty, you know, people like Dialectic Bio on on Twitter who hates me, um, who actually brought to mind that that personal choice can be eugenics because, you know, people like Rebecca Sear were saying, oh no, you know, she she criticizes me in one of her papers and says, Diana Fleischman says, you know, that uh, personal choice or or prenatal screening can be eugenics, but it's not because people are not thinking about the good of the species, even if it might have eugenic uh, outcomes. And, you know, what these progressive uh, historians of, of eugenics have said is actually what Galton meant uh, was not top-down control. And so it doesn't make any sense to, to make this bright line, although it is easier to make a bright line and say eugenics is just racist stuff or just just increasing the prevalence of white people. That's a common definition. Or only top-down control that's coercive, another t- another common definition. So in my piece, which is called You're Probably a Eugenicist, I just lay out you know, why eugenics shouldn't be used as a slur because I was very annoyed by the discourse around uh, modern technology uh, where people were saying you know, something like, so there's this guy called George Church. He came up with an app idea called Digidate where... It's a it's like a Tinder app, but you would upload your genome into there, and it wouldn't match you with somebody who has a genome where you would make babies that would have potentially uh, serious disorders, something like you know Tay Sachs. And people were calling this uh, eugenics. And th- the point that I was making is, yes, it is eugenics, and that's fine. So you you actually can't learn anything morally by using the word uh, eugenics. And certainly, I've been criticized. People have said, oh, we should we should try to reclaim the word at all. Um, But, you know, you could say this is an annoying semantic battle, uh, but certainly when it comes to something like euthanasia, uh, you know, 10 years ago people were saying, or 15 years ago they were saying you shouldn't use the word euthanasia to talk about um, helping somebody die who's in pain because it was a word that the Nazis used and now people use it very easily. And I think reclaiming the word has helped increase the popularity of, uh, you know, what they would call death with dignity, which is another nice way of saying um, you know, killing people who want
1: to die. So, yeah. Well, so one thing I will say is, you know, these lexical treadmills that are going on, I mean, in terms of eugenics, um, you know, we do know that, uh, prenatal screening, um, you know, you, you are, I mean, I think I can say this, you're pregnant again, like you have been pregnant before. A a lot of people who are childless, child-free or are too young to be at that stage of life don't know that, uh, Now, like, women routinely get a blood draw, and they are told, like, you know, about a dozen, I think, now, uh, genetic conditions, including Down syndrome, uh, of the fetus, you know, and they may do verification, but the point here is we are engaged in the last 10 years in this massive, massive, uh, you know, biomedical experiment, and the only people that discuss this are, you know, social conservatives and pro-life people, And if I point this out, like you know, and I think you've probably done it too, if you point out this fact that this is probably the biggest eugenic quote unquote change in society in the last decade, it's silence. Why is it silence? I my hypothesis is this is just self-interest. People in academia are actually doing this because they have children later. It's them. So when they make the choices, it can't be bad. You know
0: if you're somebody who maligns eugenics, you're generally somebody who is unwilling to bite Any bullet. This is my experience with people who are like progressive, you know, anti eugenicists. And so if you say, I'm against women having prenatal testing to choose whether or not they're going to bring a baby to term that has a severe disability, then you don't want to bite that bullet because saying that a woman shouldn't be able to terminate a pregnancy is something that social conservatives say and they don't want to be on the wrong side of that divide, right? So, you know, an individual woman is probably not making a choice on the basis of how she wants to change the the genetics of the population. But certainly if a government subsidizes prenatal testing, they are having a eugenic effect on the population.
1: Yeah. And and the government does in various ways, uh, you know, tax credit, I mean, with Obamacare, in the United States, socialized medicine in Europe and the NHS. So these are, these are really, really live, uh, questions and you've jumped into it. Um, in a way, it's interesting because the technology is kind of incrementally uh you know bringing us to all these sorts of screening you know people are doing in vitro they're screening their you know embryos they're doing all these sorts of things it's happening uh but we're not really talking about it and it becomes normalized and then eugenics is the next uh you know it's like the next thing that hasn't been done yet um you know you were talking you bring up like the racial issues uh again the media doesn't platform this nobody amplifies this but if you go to pro-life websites, they talk about genocide against Black people because yeah. uh, in the United States, abortion uh, is really, really skewed towards Black Americans and to a lesser yeah. extent, you know, Latinx Americans. You know, so they talk about it, and like, yeah, yeah, you're laughing because, but you know what? It's ironic. No, no,
0: I didn't, I didn't know if it was ironic. Okay,
1: it's ironic, <laughs> you know. Only, only right, only right-wing people say Latinx now. That's just a thing. No, I didn't know that. Like we, we've, okay. we've, we've, we've reclaimed it, you know, because, um, you know, and like to my Latinx brothers and sisters out there, I'm, I'm being ironic. Do not, yeah, I got, you know what, like, I'm gonna like, I'm gonna talk about this real quick. Uh, I was at like a social event, and I was, I said someone was Latinx. Uh, they took offense because they were Latinx. Next thing I know, like three uh swarthy males have surrounded me and are daring me to call them Latinx and I did and and it was uh, it was a tense moment um there is some Latinx rage i guess uh about the fact that apparently like 10 years ago some uh white women in a conference boardroom decided to rename a whole ethnicity uh, <laughs> you know they're not happy about it like they're Latinx and they're not going to take it anymore so <laughs> anyway be careful out there you know, like this sort of like uh, this sort of like ironic usage of the term. Uh, you know, I've had some experiences, so you got to be careful. But um, yeah, I mean, in terms of abortion, uh, it does have disparate impact. That's what literally disparate impact is. And so, the pro life faction, uh, you know, the the pro life group in the United States was like, you know, like forty percent of the population. They've been talking about it for decades, and it gains no traction because, uh, you know, as Jonathan Haidt would say, you know, abortion is a sacred value on the left. You know,
0: yeah, yeah. and uh, you know there there is some interesting evidence about abortion being eugenic, uh, which is obviously unfortunately tied up with this race. So there's this guy uh, Donahue and Levitt, the guys who came up with Freakonomics, and there's this data now that shows that one of the main drivers of the reduction in crime in the nineties was the legalization of abortion and deletting, You know, probably had something to do with it too, but they were. Um, you know there is synchronicity between those two things it's not one or the other and uh they assiduously you know donahue and levitt avoid talking about any kind of genetic effects like maybe somebody who is careless enough to get pregnant is also somehow predisposed to have a child who's careless enough to uh or or not conscientious enough uh, to avoid breaking the law um there's also this idea that the homicides were decreased um, by the legalization of abortion, which is another thing that the the right really hates, even though they're they're tough on crime. They hate this idea. But anyway, in, in Donahue and Levitt, there are two papers which cover more than 20 years of data on abortion and crime rates. Uh, they say that the important factor in why children who would have been aborted if abortion was legal go on to commit uh crimes is because they're unwanted they talk about unwantedness as opposed to any kind of genetic factor um but these papers convince me absolutely that uh that legal abortion has a eugenic component to it um even you know I, there there are certainly edgelords online who say that it's not because uh, but but i i think
1: it definitely does well, I mean, so, I mean, you know, I, I love this about you, but, like, you're like Ishmael, like, your hand is against every other man, you know? <laughs> so, it's just, like, we have these social justice warriors on the left that are coming at you, and you're, like, throwing out, like, casual comments about how abortion is eugenic, and I'm sure that my, my pro-life listeners are just, like, you know, gouging their eyes out right now. Um, you know, what what impels you to, like, it, 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 are you hardwired to be just like very disagreeable and casual about throwing? I mean, I know you used to be vegan. Like you, you obviously have a, an interest in um extremism of various sorts. Interest you know? in
0: extremism. You're making me sound like I used to belong to ISIS. <laughs> uh, I'm disagreeable. And I think, I think that the topics that piss people off are just more interesting. I guess maybe it's like a combination of being disagreeable and, and easily bored. I don't know. And there's this idea called high decoupling, which is where you can think about things in the abstract. Um, so that's one aspect of it. But, but another aspect of, of, I don't know, being unusual, if I'm going to talk about myself for a moment, is that I'm also very disgust insensitive, remarkably disgust insensitive for a woman. So things that are you know other people find repugnant, like moral questions, I enjoy them. I enjoy them because they're spicy. I enjoy them because they piss people off. And I enjoy them because they, you know, make me have intense feelings um, that I enjoy ignoring to try and get at the heart of the matter.
1: Well, I mean, so I mean, I'm disagreeable, but uh I, I don't have your issues. I don't have your insensitivity discussed. As anyone who's met me, I mean Diana like makes fun of me She's about this. Of this. I have I have I have a particular face that uh that I do. And everyone knows that I do this face if I'm disgusted by things. So it's interesting because I feel like we're similar in some ways, but then in other ways, uh, not so much, you know, and it just shows that there's a, there's like, d- there's a diverse way to get to the position where we are. Um, I do think that I, you know, I do enjoy, we're not predictable partly because like, I-, I feel like you're not like checking the temperature all the time and you're not reading the room and seeing so a lot of what we're talking about here you when you're talking about eugenics it's very confusing to me because um if you didn't immerse yourself in a particular subculture you wouldn't know how you wouldn't know why they're ignoring this or that okay so for example um you know social justice oriented progressive thinkers are not going to write about uh, you know how in vitro fertilization And, you know, prenatal screening is eugenic or problematic. I mean, some of them do, but that's very rare. And I do believe that they don't do that. Not, I mean, from an outside perspective, people would wonder, why aren't they talking about this? Well, they're they're not talking about this because their tribe has decided that these are good things you know, yeah. even if, so, if you, yeah, go on, go on, Diana.
0: So, so the, the other big article that I wrote, so I wrote you're probably eugenicist I don't know if you do show notes receive but you should for me. Uh, Your yeah. You're probably a genesis is one. And no, the I other won. one is um, polygenic screening, healthy babies versus bad arguments. In that second one, uh, I really take aim at a, at a progressive darling uh, called Adam Rutherford, who's a BBC presenter. And in his book, you know, it's really interesting actually, in terms of a culture war, how strong, assiduously, he avoids biting a bullet. So he talks about polygenic screening just for IQ and height, which are problematic, but not for health, which would be considered unproblematic, right? And so uh, Simone and Malcolm Collins, who have been in the, uh, they're pronatalists. They're people who think that everybody should have more kids. They're actually not people who think that only some people should have more kids. Um, They're not really uh, eugenicists, actually. And they say, Essentially, you know that polygenic screening is good because they're having the healthiest children they can, and they chose their children um, their most recent child, on the basis of a health score provided by uh, genomic prediction and specifically, they wanted to avoid having a daughter who would die of the same cancer that her her grandmother died of and If you look at the culture war response to this, I think that yeah, I'm a psychologist, it's just very interesting uh, to look at how people would respond to, let's say, somebody trying to have a child who has the lowest rate of mental illness versus someone trying to have a child who has the highest IQ versus someone trying to have a child who's less likely to die uh, of cancer. And it's this avoidance of people using polygenic scoring for this particular issue, which is um, the healthiness of their, of their children. You know, and this is to get back to you, Razib. I think this is one reason why you are willing to be spicy and and bite bullets in some respects because you're really pronatalist. You love your children, and you love children generally, and you love family. And I think that this drives you to think about how to have, uh, you know, better next generation as opposed to just wanting to be edgy.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's not abstract; it's concrete, is what you're saying. Like, you know, I have a, some skin in the game, literally. Uh, and you know, uh, like so, I think one of the issues that people don't want to acknowledge is that humans vary, and human variation matters. Okay, so for example, um, you know, I I did a Twitter poll recently, and it was like it was a combination, and this was this was a very evolutionary psychology thing to do, you know, and I oh, see I saw why your people,
0: polls were so good. Yeah, yeah
1: I, I see why you guys do it. The engagement was off the charts, you know, <laughs> but it was like, you know, it, it was basically like I was asking men and women. I was like, uh, okay, IQ, uh, someone who's a 10 out of 10 IQ of 70, someone who's an 8 out of 10 an IQ of I think 85 and then someone who's a 6 out of 10 an IQ of 100 and then someone who is a 4 out of 10 and an IQ of 130. Okay. Yeah. And so those of you who just don't know really quickly, someone who's a 70, 70 is retarded. Uh, literally, I'm not like using a pejorative. They're retarded. <laughs> like 70 is retardation. Um mental discipline, whatever, I don't know. Uh whatever the 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 cool kids, whatever the term, that's in the bottom, you know, one or two percent, two percent. And then eighty-five is the fifteenth percentile, one hundred obviously at the fiftieth percentile, and uh thirty one thirty is about like two percentile. So that's a very smart what person. You say?
0: Well, you know, what do you think is the average IQ of the people who are listening right now, receive? One twenty
1: five. I think probably 120 right. yeah. yeah 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 i think that's about it right so you guys uh you know high midwit you know <laughs> should i not have said that no sorry don't edit that out i'm gonna i'm gonna get some anger right now but whatever um you know uh so uh <laughs> diana's losing it you guys aren't seeing this diana's losing it <laughs> <laughs> what should I not have said that?
0: You called your audience midwits. You're like, I really avoid controversy, but also, <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you I don't know. That uh, <laughs> well, I mean, they listen to my podcast. I don't listen to their podcast.
0: No, so I, I, I think, yeah. So w- when you when you did that poll, you know, you have to think about the the sample that's answering that poll. So. You know how much would a man be able to tolerate a woman with an IQ of 130? You know, it, actually, some of the responses were kind of interesting because men were saying how annoying high IQ women are, which I hadn't really thought about before.
1: Well, I mean, so you I should you, you, you should sh- you should meet yourself. I <laughs> know I suck. <laughs> no, um, yeah, I mean, so we, there was a sex difference. Uh Women were uh women were less likely to take the were were like much less inclined to take the trade-off of uh dumb hot and men were you Which know I mean. <laughs> well I mean it wasn't it wasn't like super skewed but like you know a lot of basically 6 out of 10 and 100 was actually the sweet spot for men a lot more women picked the 4 out of 10 130 option Although a fair number of my my like followers on Twitter did did pick that that are male as well. Um I mean that was the option that I would have picked, probably. I mean, no, it is what the option I picked, literally. Well, not in real life, but uh, <laughs> I'm I'm like digging myself into a hole here. But uh You're what like I'm saying is like <laughs> <laughs> your wife was hot, whatever wife you have now. <laughs> um so uh yeah, uh it's interesting because you know, these are like these are conversations that happen on YouTube. Uh, uh, just in real life, and they're eugenical conversations, but we don't label them as such. Yeah, you yeah, know
0: it'd be great to do a book. Um, you know, I think Jeffrey's talked about doing this, but I don't know if the zeitgeist is different now than it used to be. But how amazing would it be to be the, for there to be a book about like how to pick somebody to have kids with that you know you'd be genetically compatible with? There's a lot of trade offs, um, as we all know, all of us who have kids and. And so, yeah, for me, you know, I waited a long time to have kids, um, but with somebody who has a, a, I don't know, I don't want to brag, but we're really far into this podcast. If you're still here with somebody with a 150 IQ, that was like amazing to me. Right. And I'm definitely more interested in having more kids with somebody with a 150 IQ than I would with somebody with a 130 IQ. But I'm explicitly eugenic in my personal life too. Although I have not used polygenic screening for the record.
1: Okay. 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 Well, I mean, you have, ironically, I ha- that's I, the- have,
0: I have I have chosen a mate for yeah. polygenic characteristics, but yeah,
1: because IQ the IQ, IQ is a polygenic characteristic, and that's what I'm getting at. We don't label it that way, though.
0: Yeah, and and my husband's weaknesses are things that I have. You know, like my I'm I'm almost pathologically cheerful, um, and so it's fine for me to get together with somebody who's sad sometimes, as opposed to. I would not want to get together with somebody else manic. I'd have children that were crazy. So yeah,
1: and, and we yeah. know that uh, you know, we know that he does not overeat uh for sure. <laughs> <He's> very, <laughs> right. we know that he has he has self control about that. You know, and I'm a
0: hobbit. I'm only five feet tall. He's six feet tall. So these are all good things. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I mean, you know, the height, for example. Uh, you know, there are women uh the and men who have like really extreme preferences uh there're i mean there are guys that I know that are six feet, and they only date short women like women that are below five four yeah that's all they and like that's a thing, right. and we don't need to talk about why it's a thing, but it's a thing <laughs> and, you know and then this people- woman who's five feet tall,
0: I definitely know why the, the people like it, you know, and like I've never. I dated a dude. I think the tallest dude I ever dated was like six six, but like I've never. I mean, as far as I know, no one's ever rejected me because I'm short, which is crazy, right? Because I am fucking short. <laughs> so,
1: yeah. I mean, I. Yeah, I'm, you know what? I'm not gonna like this podcast is not about my preferences. <laughs> so I'm not going to, I'm not going to go there. Like you're, you're like, you're, you're, you're like you're yeah.
0: women and I absolutely think, you know, cause if somebody was saying like, Oh, you know um, my family, we always got together with um, smart, tall women. And certainly if tall women are like less in demand, you can get a great deal on IQ. If you're willing to date somebody tall, I love a tall woman. I, I'm, I, I date women and men and I love a tall woman. So yeah, fine.
1: <laughs> okay okay just we we just we just went into tmi territory although i guess you could you can see that on your twitter feed so i guess it's not tmi right we're just we just we just broke the podcast wall here and the social media is bleeding in so what is um so you're 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 doing this stuff for aporia um you guys are doing edgy stuff um Tell me about Aporia, actually. I mean I know I know people involved in it. I was on its earlier there was an earlier incarnation. I was on the podcast like a year ago uh before you took over and uh, I mean you know I have to say uh, and I've told you this privately you are a good uh you are a good podcast host uh and it's not because you're a high midwit. Um that's also like a you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean yeah. we all know that, you know, that, that really, it's it, really, it, it, yeah,
0: cornering the market on like uh, you know, Jewy. I mean there's the, the whatever the Aporia audience is probably like I don't know, 90% male if I'm being generous, 95% male. Um yeah. and so yeah, the, you know, I, when when I started talking to Aporia and I was like, "Hey, why don't I do a podcast for you?" Um and they are like, "Okay, cool, let's negotiate." And I was like, "I know I'm in a good bargaining position because there's like one race realist woman. <laughs> Who's like not doesn't have autism that you might know? I mean, I'm being really cheeky, but uh, so yeah, Aporia does edgy shit. Um, It's about immigration. It's about polygenic screening. It's about eugenics. It's about um, whether there are race differences and sex differences. Uh, There's a really cool interview with somebody who's an expert on Galton. Uh, Galton was like a fascinating character, and but we'll publish anything from from anybody. You know, my editor Matt. um, He published a deeply religiously conservative uh rebuttal to my polygenic screening essay saying you know i'm commodifying people and that that's not a catholic thing to do so you know we're we're happy to take stuff from people and i'm i'm really proud to work for them because it's kind of one of a kind in terms of the kinds of stuff that we tackle so uh they're uh, collecting some some canceled academics. Bo Weingard, who was canceled for being a eugenicist, even though he's not one. Yeah, um, he, uh, he worked. No,
1: you know, I, I have to say, uh, Bo Weingard believes in human <laughs> dignity. So, go on.
0: <laughs> Actually, if we were talking about the Wisdom of Repugnance. We were talking about maybe we'll do, me and Bo will do a a Wisdom of Repugnance because, like, I'm totally disgust and sensitive, and he's like, even more disgust sensitive than you, Razib. So it'd be interesting to, to do um, to do a ch- conversation with him. But yeah, I do interviews there. I mean, uh, it's going to be a little while, but there's things that are going to get released. Uh, there's an interview with Simone Collins. There's an interview with Aella that will come out. I'm going to not work for a little while because I'm having a baby in literally ten days. And then uh, I also write a book called How to Train Your Boyfriend. It's about I don't know half drafted, and I got an extension on that. And it's it's a behaviorist treatment of human relationships a behaviorist evolutionary psychology treatment of human relationships and uh, that's another thing that people find disgusting which i enjoy
1: wait what wait they find behaviorism or evolutionary wait what do they find yeah fi- they
0: find the, any any idea that people are consciously or unconsciously manipulating each other you know if you have a child this is maybe another thing about childlessness children are incredibly manipulative some people i guess are averse to that idea. They think that's disgusting. But yeah, the the whole premise is that we are always using different kinds of techniques. You can call it manipulation, you can call it control, or you can just call it influence uh, to try to change one another's behavior. And that's for evolutionary reasons. Our survival as individuals depended on how much other people were willing to help us, other people were willing to be nice to our kids, how much other people were willing. Uh, to avoid doing things that would, would harm us. And if you can control other people's behavior, if there's a paradigm for that, which there is, it's called behaviorism, then why would that not be instantiated in human psychology? So that's the premise of how to train your boyfriend. Hmm.
1: Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's news you can use. Uh, that was a, a tagline for us news, which I don't know if that's, that's true anymore, but so a lot of evolutionary psychology, you know, I feel like this about population genetics as well, you know, it, Okay, so for example, you know, people are like, you know, people are like, oh, well, you want to get a smart person, blah, 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 for your offspring. And there's like, okay, you just do like a formula, like a modified form of the breeder's equation, do regression to the mean, you can calculate the expected value, use the population sample variance as your, you know, offspring sample variance. So you can like do some back of the envelope automatically, right? And I feel like evolutionary psychology is quite similar. Uh, it's a very, very applied science in that way. And I know Jeffrey Miller, your husband, has written some stuff in that vein uh more recently uh and so um you know it's it's gonna have utility and it's gonna be contentious because you know it's like therapy like anything in the public eye it's not like you guys are doing solid state physics uh something that is important but is not controversial right it it is controversial although um i feel like um as we're closing out i mean what is what do you think is the biggest misconception of people about evolutionary psychologists? because I mean I will tell you what I think. Uh, I think a lot of people in academia, in particular for some bizarre reason, think evolutionary psychologists are reactionaries, and yeah.
0: uh, they're pretty story.
1: norm normy liberals, right?
0: yeah, so Josh Tiber uh, published a study back in I think two thousand and eight about the political inclinations of evolutionary psychologists. They're largely progressive. So yeah, um, people think that evolutionary psychologists just make stuff up. Uh, Certainly, there's a lot of armchair evolutionary psychologists and a lot of popular evolutionary psychology, which is just made-up stuff. But there's a lot of, I think, much harder evolutionary psychology. Um, There's an unsavory connection with evolutionary psychology and reactionaries in the pickup artist community, uh, which is not something that I think evolutionary psychology has cultivated. Certainly, if you give people information that corresponds with a cynical view of humanity they're interested in it um so i don't think that you know pick up artists or reactionaries there's a reason they like evolutionary psychology but it's not because evolutionary psychologists have courted them and uh yeah that, i think those are the two the two main ones uh you know people like uh, you know ed Haig. i mean i, I certainly I, it's been a while since i've been to an evolutionary psychology conference for a variety of reasons but uh certainly, people like me and Jeffrey are not considered you know core people people are iffy about us because we are more right of center or more centrist than the average evolutionary psychologist is
1: okay yeah um so I will uh, put all the links. Like we we discussed, a lot of things that you actually wrote about. Uh, so I'll put the links in the show notes, and obviously find you at Aporia. And I, you know, I did tell you this privately, so I'll, I'll tell you this again on the podcast so people know. Uh, you are a good interviewer. You are quite, uh, you know, e- entertaining. Um, you know, good content, as they say. Uh, you know, so um, I I do recommend it. Uh, there are some people. Uh, You know, who are not as dynamic, uh, you know, and so even even if uh, the topics are interesting, you kind of it's kind of a snooze fest. That's never it's never like that with you, Diana. So um, I really recommend, uh, you know, the podcast you're hosting
0: jokes. You got to smile and sprinkle in jokes. You know, you got to give people a little bit of respite from serious stuff every once in a while, like every few minutes.
1: Well, okay, Drag on
0: to the serious.
1: You know, here, here's one thing. Like, uh, you know, as we close out, I'm just gonna like put this out there. It's the end, just so people know. Um, your name is Diana Fleischman, and people think um, people think you're you know you're a a woman of the Jewish persuasion. You know, which uh, <laughs> which you which you are somewhat, but the reality is you're not very Jewish. So why why don't you just like tell people that?
0: I'm a, I'm a quadroon, as you would say.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm don't get me in trouble I'm again. So, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: We'll trouble again. Uh, I've already gotten in trouble. So my father's father. Um, was a German Jew, Walter Fleischmann. Then he married a woman who is a mixture of various things German, Czech, French, mostly German. And then my mother is Portuguese, tiny Portuguese lady. So I'm half Portuguese, a quarter Ashkenazi, and a quarter mostly German.
1: Yeah. So you're, the, you know, my point here is like, you're actually a Latinx woman. That's right. You're not I'm a Latinx. Jewish woman. And people don't know that, so uh, I just I just wanted to put that out there. Um, you are you are twice as Latinx, and you are Jewish, despite your name. And so, um, with that, with that like big reveal, I will I will close this podcast. And uh, you know, uh, con- uh, congratulations on the new baby soon, and good nice. luck on everything. All right, thanks for having me. Great, on. Bye. Great, great talking to you. This
0: podcast for kids.